Welcome to the Converge Community Church Podcast, where we provide for you the previous Sunday morning sermon. And now without further ado, may the Holy Spirit minister to your heart as you hear the preaching of God's Word. Uh, my hope is, is that, you know, as we walk through this passage together, uh, that we might hear from the Lord, that we could be ministered by him. And um, before I read this passage, though, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 50. Uh, let me give you a little bit of background or a little bit of review what we covered so far in this chapter, chapter 12. Um, we see that Jesus is ministering to the people of Israel by preaching and teaching, but also doing miraculous works among them. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. And at some point, he also sends out his 12 disciples to do the same kind of ministry that he was doing. So he sends them out to these cities and, and uh, has them preach and minister and Afterwards, though, it doesn't seem like he's following along with them and doing ministry as well, but it doesn't seem as if the cities that they're going to respond or are receptive to that ministry. And so Jesus gives a rebuke to these cities, and he says the reason for this rebuke is because you are not repenting. You're not turning from your sin. You're not changing your mind and following the king into his kingdom, right? And that's what Matthew's trying to draw out throughout his gospel is he's making this call for us to follow the king into his kingdom. And through that, there's this change in direction or this call to repentance in that. And, and so Jesus pronounces to these cities a rebuke, and that kind of brings us into chapter 12, where um, Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders, these Pharisees and scribes, concerning various things like uh, his disciples walking into a grain field and picking grain as they're walking and, and eating. And the Pharisees look at that and go, wait a minute, isn't this the Sabbath day? They're working. So they're being so critical. They're looking at every little thing that Jesus and his disciples are doing, and they're, and they're pointing out these, these, uh, uh, these issues that they're offended by. They're working on the Sabbath just by grabbing grain. And, of course, Jesus responds to them and kind of puts them in their place by saying, hey, listen, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And by the way, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so when he speaks of the Sabbath, and he's referring to himself, when he's speaking of the Sabbath, he's speaking with authority. Uh, you think it's this way and how it is. No, 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 let me tell you how it really is. Right? So he's kind of putting the Pharisees in their place. And then later, the Pharisees question about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And so they get into that issue, and Jesus asks them, do you think it's okay to actually do good on the Sabbath? Isn't it, isn't it good to do good on the Sabbath? 
They were like, well, yeah, maybe. And Jesus, boom, heals this man with a withered hand. And again, Jesus kind of puts the Pharisees or these religious leaders in their place and, and they do not like it. And it continues on and says that they seek to destroy him. They, they, they turn on him. They, they are now against him, opposed to, them, to him. And um, the Pharisees then, uh, after this healing of, the withered, of this man with the withered hand, there's another confrontation. Jesus again heals a demon-oppressed man this time. Uh, and the people who witnessed this miracle they're wondering, wait a minute, um, could this be the son of David? The interesting thing is, this is what Matthew's trying to, to point out throughout the whole gospel, that Jesus is the son of David, the king who's to usher in the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus is even preaching about. And so finally, it takes all the way into chapter 12, where the people that are witnessing these miracles to finally go, oh, um, wait a minute. There might be something here to this guy. Could he be the son of David? They're wondering. They're, they're being receptive. But the Pharisees, they don't wonder the same way that the people are. They're not questioning like, the people. Instead, they accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And this is where Jesus gives a rebuke to those who, what he's describing as blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And he warns not just the Pharisees, but all the people that they will be given an account for every careless word that they speak. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus is doing these miraculous works by the power of the Spirit. And here's the interesting thing. The Pharisees don't say, you know what? He's a fraud. He's a phony. He's a fake. He's not really doing these things. They couldn't deny the miracles. Instead, they're saying he's doing it by a different power. He's doing them by the power of the Spirit. It's showing that the Spirit is upon him. And they're going, no, 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 no. It's by the Spirit of Beelzebub, by the power of Beelzebub. And so in that way, they're blaspheming what the Spirit is doing. And Jesus warns against that. So this is what the Pharisees are doing. They, they don't deny the miraculous work of Jesus. They could have just called him a phony. Instead, they accuse him of casting out demons. And this is what it looks like to blaspheme. But here's the thing, it is obvious, and Jesus is pointing this out in his arguments when he's interacting with these Pharisees. It is, it is obvious that the Spirit is with him, that he is truly the Son of God, and that he is ushering in the kingdom of heaven. And this brings us to our passage this morning where he continues to, we, we, we will see him uh, continue with a dialogue with the Pharisees and the scribes. And again, we're going to hear another rebuke. Jesus is going to rebuke them again. 
And he's going to do it in front of, of the people, in front of the crowd again. And so in this passage, we're going to see a distinction between the Pharisees and the disciples, or, which I think is the title, those, who, um, those that are sign seekers, that are seeking signs, and the church family, the family of God. Sign seekers or church family. That's what we're going to see. And so here's the main idea that we're going to see in this passage, and that is this. It's the call to avoid condemnation by seeking God's will with a repentant heart. Avoid condemnation by seeking God's will with a repentant heart. So with that, let's stand together. I'll read this passage for us. And if you would follow along, uh, as, as I read it out loud, you can follow along in your Bibles or it'll be on the screen. But let's, let's hear from the Word of God. This is Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 50. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... It passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than a first. So also will it be with this evil generation." And while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood before him or stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask, Lord, that you would reveal to us what you have for us this morning, that you would speak, you'd speak to our hearts, and Lord, that we would be transformed in the likeness of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so this morning we've 
broken up, or I've broken up this passage into three second, three sections, or three points. And so the first point that we want to look at is that all those who reject the sign of Jesus will face condemnation. All those who reject the sign of Jesus will face condemnation. This is verses 38 through 42. And so our passage begins with the Pharisees and scribes responding to Jesus' previous rebuke by asking for a sign. The first question you might be asking is, why are they asking for a sign? Jesus has been healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons. Isn't that enough? Do we really need another sign? And I think the answer to that is, at least for the Pharisees and the scribes, whose hearts are hardened, that there will never be enough signs that will convince them that Jesus is the promised king and who is going to usher in his kingdom. So no matter what he does, no matter what he says, they will never be convinced. And I think Jesus has alluded to that in previous chapters. If remember back in chapter 11, Jesus gives an illustration and he's kind of comparing himself and John the Baptist who's preaching about the kingdom. He compares uh, himself and John to children playing music. And he says something along the lines of, we played the flute for you and you did not dance and we played uh, the dir- a dirge and you did not mourn. And it's this aspect of, of playing different kinds of music and the people refusing to respond, right? And so I don't know about you, but I love music. And uh, if, if you turn on something that's more of dance music, that gets me that gets me going. I start moving towards the, to the music and, you know, get, gets me, uh, uh, the illustration is, you know, when, when we do chores around the house, a lot of times the kids like to turn on music and so they're dancing and they're enjoying themselves as they're doing their chores, right? Or if you, uh, um, another illustration is maybe, um, this is, I remember this in college where there'd be, uh, uh, one of my buddies in his room blasting um, the, um, you know, the band Chicago with their sappy love songs or their sappy breakup songs. And I go in and open the door and their, you know, tears are in their eyes. And, and what happened? They're like, my girlfriend broke up with me, you know, but they're, but they're connected, they're receiving the music, right? There, there's something with that. And so there's, there's an aspect where when we hear music, we're receptive to it. But here Jesus in his illustration is, is they're not receptive to it at all. It doesn't matter if we blast the tunes and dance music or we sing a sappy love song, they're not about it. They're rejecting it. Their hearts are hardened. They're refusing to receive. And this is exactly what he's pointing out with these Pharisees. 
It doesn't matter what he comes what he comes with, no matter what kind of sign he gives, they're going to reject Jesus. And I would suggest to you that uh, their motives for a sign is not out of a desire to be convinced, but perhaps to be uh, to gain some type of control over Jesus. Because this isn't just them asking questions like, hey, why are your disciples doing this? Or what about healing on the Sabbath? No, they're actually asking for a sign. Jesus, if you just do this, if you just jump through this hoop that I put up for you, if you just, this hurdle that I just put up, if you just do that and we just watch, see if you do it, then we'll be convinced. So in a way, what they're doing is, is wanting control. They want something over Jesus. They are demanding a sign which puts them in the driver's seat and makes Jesus go on the defensive. Like he's trying to now, you know, um, prove to them in some ways. It's now him dancing for them. But Jesus doesn't play that game. Instead of giving in to their demand, he responds with a rebuke. And this is verses 39 through 40. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. So what is he doing there? He's equating the Pharisees and the scribes, right? They're demanding a sign. He says, you know what? It's an evil generation that demands a sign. And they're like, ooh. He's describing them as evil and adulterous. Those are some strong words. It's, it's this picture of, of those who say that they will commit or have some type of covenant or relationship, specifically here, it's with God, and them turning away from it and seeking some other God. And this is, this is a picture of what transpired throughout the Old Testament. If you remember, God gives them the law, and the people of Israel say, we will follow everything that you command. And all of a sudden, they turn away, and they start following other gods. And this is the same kind of idea that Jesus is bringing out in an adulterous generation. You think that you want to follow God, but instead you're following false gods. You're an adulterous generation. And he says this, no sign will be given to it, except he does make an exception here. And what's the sign? It's the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40 says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So here it's pretty obvious that Jesus is alluding to his death and resurrection. If you remember the story of Jonah, Jonah was on a ship running from God, and God brought a storm. And the solution in order to save the ship and the crew was to throw Jonah overboard into the sea, which meant for Jonah, death, right? If 
you're out in the middle of the sea, there's no land in sight, you throw the person overboard in the, in, in the storm, yeah, that's a death sentence. And so that's kind of the image that Jesus is bringing out here, this idea of death. And then, of course, if you remember the story, it continues. Jonah was in the belly of a whale three days and three nights and then gets spit out onto the shore. So it's almost this image of death and coming back to life. So a death and resurrection. So in a subtle way, Jesus is pointing to his own death and resurrection, which, you know, it will also appease the wrath of God, right? When Jonah gets thrown into the water, boom, the storm is calm. When Jesus dies and three days later rises again, the wrath of God subsides. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues to make a point that the Pharisees and the scribes refuse to accept. And that is this, and he says it in various ways, that, that there's something greater that is right in front of them. He says, something greater is here. So look at verses 41 through 42. So he continues on with these, this illustration of Jonah and um, getting into Nineveh and and also some other illustrations. He says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah. It continues on. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So if, if we go back to uh, the beginning of chapter 12, we're going to see this again. It's when the 12 disciples are walking with, uh, or walking along the grain fields, right? And picking the grain and the Pharisees come and they, and they go, wait a minute, why are they working? And, and Jesus responds back to them and he's giving an explanation why it's okay for them to do this. And one part of it, he brings up how priests work in the temple during the Sabbath, right? And it's okay for them to work on the Sabbath in the temple. And then he makes this statement even there. He says something greater than the temple is there. Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. You can just, if you want, you can throw it up there. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And now we see this phrase repeated in our passage. This time it's with Jonah the prophet going to Nineveh. And he says in verse 41, something greater than Jonah is here. And then Jesus mentions Solomon and the queen of the south, which, which actually is the queen of the south is the queen of Sheba. So we're familiar with the story of Jonah and the prophet, but let me refresh our minds about the story of Solomon and the queen of Sheba. This actually comes from 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. I don't have it up for you. I'm just going to kind of tell the story. of uh, This is during the reign of King Solomon, and the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon. And so she goes to Jerusalem 
and uh, with, with all these gifts for this great king that she heard about. And at one point she comes to him and she told him everything that was on her mind, all of her questions that she had about life, about philosophy, about everything that under the sun. And Solomon, it says, answered all of her questions, that there was nothing hidden from this king. She, she's astounded by his wisdom. And when she saw his wisdom and when she saw the kind of house that he built for himself and the food that was at his table and the, the officials and how they were dressed and that the cupboards were filled and that there was burnt offerings and, um, at the temple and um, she was astounded. In fact, it says that there was no more breath in her. She was amazed at what she saw concerning King Solomon. And then it says this, she responds to what she experienced with Solomon and his kingdom. It says, blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. So here's the queen of Sheba, this, this outsider, she's not Jewish. She's not from the Jewish kingdom. She hears about this king and, a, and what the Lord has done there and how great he is. And he's, she's like, I'm going to go check this out for myself. And she sees it for herself and is astounded. It takes her breath away and she actually gives glory to God for it. And now Jesus is saying, here I am doing all these miraculous works, speaking with authority that you've never heard before. I am right here in front of you and I am greater than the temple that you have. I am greater than the prophets of old like Jonah that we had. I'm even greater than the greatest king that we've ever had. Something is greater here standing right in front of you and you refuse to acknowledge it. Isn't it interesting? Nineveh, a pagan Gentile city, a prophet comes and calls them to repentance and they're stricken in their hearts and they repent. A Gentile queen from outside the Jewish people. She doesn't know anything about the law. She, she hasn't experienced God's grace and, and mercy for Israel. She didn't experience that, but she comes and she sees what God has done and she acknowledges it in, in praise. So these outsiders, these Gentiles that haven't experienced the same type of mercy and grace from God, they come with a, a receptive heart. And here are these leaders of the Jewish people and standing right in front of them, something greater than anything that they've experienced and they reject it. We see this before in Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24, 
where Jesus is denouncing these cities. He says in verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And he says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. This is a picture, friends, of how our hearts can be so hardened towards the truths of God. So hardened to what Jesus is doing. And so the religious leaders here, the people of Israel have no excuses. They know the Old Testament. They are seeing it fulfilled right in front of them. Even Gentiles like Nineveh and the queen of the south turned their hearts to what God was doing. But this generation of religious moralists rejected the promised king standing right in front of them. And Jesus gives a clear warning. All those who reject the sign of Jesus will face condemnation. This is, this, is a, this is a tough truth, but I think it even applies for us today because we can so easily be like the religious people of that time, refusing to see what God is doing, to, see, to refuse what Jesus is doing among us, to reject the truths that may be hard for us to accept. So this message isn't just for the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that time, but we can easily fall into that kind of hardness of heart as well. So that's point number one. Here's point number two. That casually following Jesus leads to great peril. Peril, sorry. I always say, <laughs> not a pearl, peril. Casually following Jesus leads to great peril. So in verses 43 through 45, Jesus is giving an analogy that is describing the state of the current generation. And, and I think it's actually typical of every generation. So we will see that in religion, there is a danger of turning it into what I'm describing a hollow moralistic duty. This is speaking out against in his Sermon on the Mount concerning prayer. He gives some examples of like prayer and giving offerings and fasting. And he was saying, don't be like the hypocrites who go out and they pray in front of all the people to to raise themselves up, be like, oh, look at how great this person is, right? Or offering, giving offerings in front of all the people to show how righteous they are. Or fasting, and when you're fasting, you look, you know, uh, like you've been fasting to show how righteous you are. And Jesus describes those as hypocrites that practice these things in public in order to gain recognition. And, and of course, Jesus says, instead, do these in secret so that only God sees. So um, let me read this section and then I'll explain it and unpack it a little bit more for you. So verse 30, 
or 43 says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty and swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be for this evil generation. So this is a picture of someone who is trying, who is not truly repentant. There may be signs of religious effort, of, of cleansing or, or tidying up their house, but, but it, they're still empty inside. You see, remember that the people are coming from all over the region with their sick and in hopes of Jesus healing them. And the people are amazed at what they see. So they follow Jesus, but that doesn't necessarily make them true disciples. So let me give you an example of this. There's uh, a story in the gospel of John and describing these crowds. And so uh, remember that there was a time when um, they're following him and they have no food. And so uh, Jesus performs a miracle by by, uh, multiplying fish and loaves of bread and feeds the people. And as they're following along later, uh, Jesus kind of asks this question, I think, to them, why is it that you follow me? And he says, it's because I filled your bellies. You wanted something from me, you needed something from me, and I gave it to you, and that's why you're following me. But I'm asking something more of you. And he says it in this way. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. So come and feed on me. And, and the people, the crowd are, well, what does that mean? And, and he goes into greater detail about that. And he says, uh, uh, you must, he calls them, you must feed on my flesh or you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And as he's describing this, um, the people get very uncomfortable of what he's demanding of them, and they actually turn away and walk away. It says that they, they abandon him. And then Jesus turns to his 12 disciples, all that is left. And he says, do you want to go too? Of course, they stay. But the point is, is that there's this clear distinction between the people that are following Jesus because Jesus is providing these earthly needs for them compared to his disciples that know that Jesus gives so much more and even calls them to so much more. So the house is the people or generation. So let's, we're getting back to our list or this, this, uh, um, um, this illustration or this picture that Jesus is describing here of this house. So the house is the people of, um, or generation. And when Jesus comes 
The worldly spirit of that generation flees for a time, but instead of fully committing to Jesus, remember that house is empty. And instead of inviting Jesus in or inviting the spirit, the Holy Spirit in, fully committing to Jesus, the house remains empty. So sure, it's clean and tidy. There may be a little more religious talk or, or maybe there's a little more prayer taking place or better behavior, but not a full commitment to Jesus. This is what that picture, this is what Jesus is describing here. Uh, A theologian and commentator um, says it this way. He says, this is a parable about those who are refusing to embrace what Jesus brings. They may have appreciated its immediate benefits, but have kept themselves safely distant from its deeper and uh, its deeper challenges and larger significance. Their house may have been tidied, but they remain empty. And so an awaits them. This is what Jesus is describing here. Another picture of this, this is, um, and you don't have to, uh, Ian, well, yeah, you can put this up. Um, this illustration from a book called The Screwtape Letters written by uh, C.S. Lewis. And uh, the screw tape letters is basically this analogy that he's um, describing of a demon, this head demon who is um, kind of giving advice to his nephew, a, a minor demon that's, that's kind of attacking or kind of on this, this specific person. And so the it's as though this little demon is writing to uh, Professor Screwtape, is his name, and trying to ask for some advice, and, and Professor Screwtape is, is responding back. So there's this interaction going on, and there's a time where the person becomes a Christian, and so the little demon's like, oh no, now we're in trouble. So he's, can you help me out? Professor Screwtape. And so now Professor Screwtape is going, okay, uh, don't, don't panic. We still got some options to, de- to derail this guy. And so here's one example of it that he writes to this little minion. This is Professor Screwtape writing. He says, your job is to make him acquiesce in the present low temperature of his spirit and gradually become content with it, persuading himself that it is not so low after all. In a week or two, you will be making him doubt whether the first days of his Christianity were not perhaps a little excessive. So here's some of the advice. He says, talk to him about moderation in all things. If you can... If you can once get him to the point of thinking that, and here's another thing, that religion is all very well up to a point, let's not be too extreme. Let's not go too far with it. You can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated, and here's the point, a moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all. A moderated religion is as good for us, those demons, as no religion at all and more amusing. 
So what is he describing here? He's describing someone that does all the right things on the inside, but their hearts are far from God. They're empty. Sure, they may cast off some of the passions and base desires that this world pushes upon them. But after a while, those things start to creep in even stronger and, and gain an even greater foothold. So there's this picture or this image of godliness, but it's just a false front. And Jesus describes this about the Pharisees in various ways. And later, we're going to see this again when he calls them whitewashed tombs. So think of it, a tomb that looks all nice, right? And clean and tidy with flowers. It looks, it looks beautiful on the inside. But if you dig in a little bit, there's a corpse there. Doesn't look very good. It doesn't smell very good. And this is precisely what Jesus is describing concerning this generation. So what does this mean for us today? And that's this. We must not merely clean up our house or clean up our lives and make it appear as if we are followers of Jesus. Jesus must occupy our hearts and our minds. So in a way that we must honestly be able to say this, this comes from Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It is a complete denial of self and acknowledging that it is Christ who now lives in me. Imagine that your heart is like a house with many rooms. Here's the question. Is there places where Jesus is not allowed? If you think of your, your life or your heart and your mind, what you think about, what you dwell on, what you're into, what your interests are, what your passions are, if you think of that as a, as a mansion with all these rooms, sure, there might be rooms that you're open to Jesus walking into, but are there rooms or even closets with cobwebs that, like Jesus, you're not allowed in those areas of my life. What would it look like to allow him to dwell completely in your heart? What would that look like for you? I think that is an important question for all of us to ask because we do not want to be like these Pharisees. And I think it's easy for us throughout time to clean the outside and leave the inside empty. And that's a dangerous place to be. So point number one, all those who reject the sign of Jesus will face condemnation. Here's point number, number two was casually following Jesus leads to great peril. Here's point number three. Those who do God's will are the true family of God. This is verses 46 through 50. 
So in this last section, we see a turn in the conversation, which happens because Jesus' family is outside and wanting him to come out and speak with them. Jesus uses this as an opportunity to paint another picture of what it means to follow the promised king. So you can kind of think of this as, first he's, he's really going after those who reject him, and now he's kind of describing those who follow him. So this is verses 46 through 50. He says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my fathers? And stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and my mother. So notice that Jesus family are outside the place where Jesus is teaching. They're not with the disciples sitting there listening. They're not under his teaching. They are outside. And it's kind of similar to what the Pharisees are doing in the sense of the Pharisees are going, give us a sign. Do what we demand of you. And in some sense, his family's kind of come doing the same thing. Jesus, come on out to us so that we may speak with you. So there's this picture of them being outside, not coming in and under the teaching of Christ. This is a picture of one who is near, but not a true disciple. This example of a house that is tidied up, yet still empty. But notice that Jesus stretches out his hands towards his disciples. Those who are sitting at his feet, learning from him, those are the ones that are his family. It's the ones who do the will of the Father. And this brings us to an important question. What is the will of the Father? What is the will of the Father? Uh, another commentator, uh, Frederick Bruner, says it this way. It says, the, the, the will of the Father, it's the, the clear will of God means simply sitting at Jesus' feet in the company of the other disciples, listening to Jesus' words with an honest desire to do it. And I think the key here is honest desire to do it. Because what he's describing there is something that is going on within the heart. This, this uh, heart of receiving God's word. And when I mean receiving, I mean actually desiring to, to do it in some way. So I like the simplicity of this answer, but I think we must also answer it by going back to the Sermon on the Mount. Because I think this is where the Sermon on the Mount with these three chapters, verses or chapters five, six, and seven, Jesus is describing what a disciple looks like, not just in action, but what's within the heart. But what's interesting here is as he's describing this, you can say, well, this is what Jesus is like as well. So this is kind of where this connection of family comes along. So let me try to unpack this for us. So verse, uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7, we, we see the, uh, the, the blessings of God 
um, through the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, uh, those who desire or seek or hunger for righteousness. And when you go through that list, the pure in heart, it's like, this is, this is what Jesus exhibits throughout his life. And he's calling us to have the same kind of heart. And then he goes on to continue and saying, and this is how it looks in life, right? If, if, you, if uh, uh, it's, it's a call to love your enemy, to pray for those who persecute you, to, to walk with someone an extra mile if they demand for you to walk with them. It's like there, there's this picture of what it looks like. And so Jesus gives these commands and it's like, that's, that's the will of the Father, That's what he is calling us to. So here's the thing. A true child of God takes on the same characteristics as the Father in heaven. That's the picture here. A true child of God takes on the same characteristics as the Father in heaven. And so doing the will of the Father also includes having a heart-like the Father, a heart that is long-suffering and merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is the call. And this is the call of the church. So, you know, the New Testament describes disciples of Jesus in various ways. One is like a body, right? We are the body of Christ, It describes us as the bride of Christ. But it also describes us as family. You know, here's one of the things about family. We don't necessarily get to choose our family, do we? Um, And and with that, uh, I don't know about you, but within our household, we're we're not, uh, there's ways that we're alike, but there's ways that we're different. And a lot of ways in our differences, that's, those are the ways that, at least for myself, drive me up the wall. But it's not like I can go, you know what? You're done. Right? Disown my children because they leave shoes. I always pick on that part. But always leave shoes in walk paths. And I, I really do think, no. I, so I, I sometimes think it's because they want to hurt me. They, they, they want to physically do me harm, and so they lay out their things. Um, you don't know how many times in the middle of the night I kick over, uh, like, uh, Hot Wheels and um, tracks and all this other stuff and bang into things in the middle of the night that are in the hallway, you know. But here's the thing. It's not like I can disown my children for those types of things. So here's the... I'm supposed to love my children and care for them. And you know what? And forgive them. Patient with them and kind with them. Because you know what? I can't get rid of them. And I think in the same way, when it comes to the church family, we need to have that kind of perspective as well. It's like, you know what? I didn't choose you guys. But the beautiful thing is we are family. And, and, and we all, as the church family, come with our unique gifts and skills and strengths 
and weaknesses, and it's all good. And through all that, we bring God's glory. So there's something beautiful when we, when we see ourselves as the family of God. So let me encourage you in that way. And so let, let me close with this. So we're running out of time. Here are some reflection questions just to recap here. Number one, is there anything holding you back from following Jesus? Is there anything holding you back from going all in with Jesus? Are you looking for a sign? Here's another way of asking it. Are there ways that you draw near to Jesus but are unwilling to let him fully enter into your life? Well, you only get so close, but are there ways that you're resisting him? Ways that he may want to move in your life? Are there rooms in your heart that you will not allow him to enter? And are there ways that you need to see your brothers and sisters as your family? to see them as, through the eyes of Jesus with mercy and patience. And so with that, let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. May it, may it enter our hearts in a way that we move closer to you to become more like you. to move in a way, Lord, that we bring glory to you and, and the world may see it. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Make sure you come back next week to hear the next message in our series.